Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the St. John's Chambers podcast. What is today's topic? It's fundamental dishonesty and surveillance. With me, James Marrick. And myself, Darren Lewis. Darren and I both undertake a wide range of work which engages the key principles relating to fundamental dishonesty. The purpose of today is going to be a tour through some of the key recent developments in what has been an evolving and increasingly important area of personal injury claims in recent years. A quick reminder to start with, I think, of what is fundamental dishonesty and the key principles. The concept of fundamental dishonesty, as we all know, is introduced at the same time as the Jackson reforms as part of qualified one-way cost shifting. And essentially, it's one of the key grounds upon which defendants can escape from qualified one-way cost shifting. It's CPR 44.16. Order for costs made against the claimant may be enforced to the full extent of such orders with the permission of the court where the claim is found on the balance of probabilities to be fundamentally dishonest. What does fundamentally dishonest mean? Well, the answer was from an early key court of appeal case, wasn't it, Darren? So yes, that's right. The first time this issue got any key scrutiny was 2017 in Howlett, Howlett and Davis. Now, the court of appeal approved the formulation that dishonesty had to go to the root of the claim, a substantial rather than incidental or corollary part of the claim. It's important to remember when we talk about fundamental dishonesty that you can get an FD finding on liability and therefore secure a strikeout under the Part 3 powers of the court. That is the gold standard because that will ultimately allow you to get all of your costs back when strikeout has been ordered. You also have the alternative under Section 57, which we're going to talk about very shortly. That is a useful tool where liability is always going to be found on the part of the claimant there's been exaggeration and uh, fundamentally dishonest exaggeration on the part of the claimant. There, you do get the claim dismissed rather than a strikeout. And there you get your costs order, but the court will find what honest damages still attach to the claim and then take those off your costs order. So you will inevitably get less with a Section 57 dismissal than you do with a, an old-fashioned strikeout. That brings us on then to the, the next stage of the fundamental dishonesty regime, and that was the inception of Section 57, Criminal Justice and Courts Act 2015. What is the Section 57 gateway? Well, the key case is that of Locog and Sinfield. It's 2018, Queen's Bench Division, as it then was, Mr Justice Knowles. Section 57 if the court finds that the claimant is entitled to damages in respect of the claim, as Darren said, that could be liability established at trial. It could be an admission of liability. The court's found an entitlement, the claimant's entitled to be compensated. Then on an application by the defendant for dismissal of the claim, if the court is satisfied on the balance of probabilities that a claimant has been fundamentally dishonest in relation to the primary claim, the court must dismiss it, as Darren said, unless satisfied that there would be substantial injustice. And we'll look at some of the recent case law dealing with substantial injustice, which is a very difficult proposition to pin down. Some of the High Court judges disagree with me on that. So if the claim is dismissed, as Darren said, defendant gets their cost, but with credit for any honest award of damages that would have been made. But 
that the first decision which looked at it was Sinfield's. Sinfield was a case where Mr. Sinfield was injured whilst working as a volunteer at the Olympic Games. Liability was admitted and he presented a very substantial claim for additional gardening costs said to be occasioned by his injuries. In support of that claim, he produced invoices which he said he had been charged for gardening services provided by his gardener. Unfortunately for Mr. Sinfield, the gardener gave evidence at trial that he carried out work for Mr. Sinfield both before and after the accident, that the accident hadn't changed anything and that certain of the invoices had not even been issued by him. Mr. Sinfield escaped to find in a fundamental dishonesty at first instance, but was not so fortunate on appeal before Mr. Justice Knowles. And I think an important thing to remember in Sinfield is that the gardening claim really only made up about 28% of that claim. His PSLA account was found to be honest. His loss of earnings care claims, they were all found to be honest. It was this very narrow exaggeration in the gardening claim uh, to which the, uh, the finding attached and he came to grief. We see it all the time in pleadings where there's a gardening claim almost like a make-weight thrown on at the end. But it's really important when you have a particular claim pleaded by counsel where there's perhaps not been a conference to really scrutinise your gardening claim, particularly ask your client, is that accurate? Because again and again, one of the easiest ways that these findings are being secured is Googling the claimant's home address in the witness statement, looking at Google Earth and seeing that they've got an entire back garden laid to flagstones. And in fact, there's no gardening claim and people fall on that point again and again. That's definitely true, Darren. I think we'll come on to some of the the further sort of top tips for both claimants and defendants in managing potential dishonesty issues and case management generally. Just before we leave Sinfield, again, Mr Justice Knowles said, what is fundamental dishonesty under Section 57? It's any issue which substantially affects the presentation of the case. And to pick up on what Darren said, in a claim worth £10,000, a dishonest claim for special damages of £9,000 could well substantially affect the defendant's interests, notwithstanding that the defendant is a multi-million pound insurer. That's Sinfield. And I think there's one more earlier case, which we're just going to look at before looking at some of the most immediate cases of the last 12 months or so. Yes. So that case is Robertson Keeson. I think it's got the most practical effect and the most frequently cited in cases that certainly I deal with. Robertson Keeson was a a matter where the claimant had actually been flushed out by the defendants. They clearly established that he wasn't being truthful in a number of elements of his claim. He put in a second witness statement where he made clear the new factual matrix that he wanted to rely on. And ultimately, there was a revised schedule of loss that mirrored that. The judge at first instance simply said, well, he's now been truthful. He's not persisted in his dishonesty. And ultimately, Mr. Justice Jay made perfectly clear. He says in paragraph 55, I do not agree with the recorder that the correct test is one of persistence in dishonesty. So we'll see it again and again, this idea that really you need to proof your clients early, you need to be absolutely sure if you're a claimant of individual heads of loss and how sustainable they are, because you simply can't abandon it later and say, well, we're no longer persisting in what ultimately emerged to be a dishonest claim. You will still be at risk of an FD finding, and there was in that instance a Section 57 dismissal. Let's move on now to look at some of the particular issues which can arise. So we've looked at 4416, 
Section 57, the core principles, fundamental dishonesty goes to the root of the claim. What about pleading a fundamental dishonesty? What notice has to be given? What do the historic cases tell us is the answer? So Howlett, again, is, was the leading authority and arguably still is the leading authority. What happened there was that the Court of Appeal had to consider whether there was any requirement to plead positively fundamental dishonesty for the purposes of obtaining a finding under CPR 4416. The court there crucially drew the distinction between the cost provisions under CPR 44 and the established guidance on pleading fraud, the old Three Rivers case. Effectively, it concluded that there was no requirement to plead fraud or an express dishonesty case, so long as the claimant was given sufficient warning of what the defendant's case was and that their honesty or their credibility would be tested at trial. For a long time, that's where the the case law rested. But there is a perception that that might have changed or shifted now, James. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting because the Court of Appeal likes using terms, woolly terms like sufficient warning. But what does that mean in practice? There was the Pincus case, 2018, claimant challenged defendant's entitlement to argue fundamental dishonesty on the basis that fundamental dishonesty was raised late in the day and hadn't been pleaded until a very late counter schedule. The judge said, Section 57 issue, Howlett applied, permitted the challenge. There was sufficient notice. In that case, though, it had been signposted weeks, if not months before trial. So not too many shades of grey. I I tend to find that the general position in everyday county court cases is that a defendant will be permitted to run fundamental dishonesty as long as it's signposted in a defence or signposted in correspondence. If I'm perfectly frank, Howlett gives normally, in an everyday fast track, gives pretty much licence for a judge to follow the evidence. But the very recent case of Jenkinson and Robertson, Darren, has rocked the boat. It has. It has. And I think what's interesting there is that the first thing the judge says in those circumstances is they recognise that no general guidance can be laid down, which is, again, what judges are always at pains to do before possibly putting the cat amongst the pigeons. What happened in Jenkinson and Robinson was that the High Court judge recognised that there was no general guidance to be laid down as to what would constitute adequate warning and a proper opportunity to deal with the allegations as this would depend on the circumstances of each case. However, he was satisfied that it was difficult to see that this claimant was given any real notice at all, apart from a vague and deliberately unparticularised allusion to the possibility of a Section 57 application. And the fact, certainly in that case, that the claimant, by the the time they reached trial, was a litigant in person, so was effectively doubly disadvantaged. It was a vicious storm, I think, in Jenkinson. So the claimant had been originally represented. There'd been an assertion that he'd exaggerated his claim, that he was holding out that he had bad back pain. The, The second limb on appeal was that it actually wasn't expressly put to Mr. Jenkinson at trial either, that he had been dishonest. It was rather put to him that he'd been not suffering from the pain alleged. And the judge found there's a world of difference between putting to the claimant that he was not in fact suffering the pain he believed he was, and an allegation that he was fabricating and exaggerating an entire story about pain. I think it's one of the nuances of the case. So let's move on to the case of mustard and flowers. Now, We've seen that cited on a number of instances 
mostly about expert evidence and expert examination. Tell me more about the relevance of mustard and flowers specifically to pleadings of fundamental dishonesty in Section 57. Well, it's another cat amongst the pigeons, because in that case, a defendant wanted to amend its pleaded case to allege that the claimant's account as to the nature and severity of symptoms was unreliable and exaggerated. And, and importantly, the second limb here, if the court were to conclude that they had been conscious exaggeration, that the defendant reserved the right to make an application into Section 57. The court heard that application. The attempt to amend the claim to bring a conditional case of fundamental dishonesty was rejected because the master found it served no purpose since the application could be made without foreshadowing that possibility, given Howlett. A a bit of a no-win, no-win for a defendant, trying its best to signpost where the evidence might take it. But on a technical pleadings point, permission refused. Yes, and I've certainly seen mustard and flowers cited in response to counter-schedules being filed, raising FD, as well as the usual letter, at the later stages of litigation. But I've never seen it used as a strikeout tool to effectively preempt the defendant or strike out the sections of the defence or counter-schedule that deal with FD. Is that also your experience, James? It is. Very much a technical pleading point taken in that case. Mm. Where does it leave us? Well, there's a tension, isn't there, between you can follow the evidence, but also the need to give sufficient warning. It's a, it's a difficult one. I haven't used, seen it used as a sword to no. strike out to claim I've done. It's definitely a shield at this stage, but perhaps someone will have the courage to take it further up. I think probably before we move on, uh, it's worth covering the case of Long and Elegant Resorts Limited 2021, another case concerning exaggeration of personal injuries. The defendant at trial sought to explore certain lines of questioning on peripheral issues. The trial judge had held the court must be careful about drawing conclusions adverse to the honesty of a claimant from evidence on peripheral issues, most particularly where the defendant hasn't given adequate advance warning of his intention to raise those issues. The defendant was permitted to explore circumstances relating to the redundancy in that case. Do we draw any broader conclusions from that, James? I call it a rabbit hole point because you get to trial and then you go down the rabbit hole of certain lines of cross-examination. Now, London Elegance, a higher value case, and the court said there's going to be a limit upon which we are going to permit a defendant to challenge credibility in relation to peripheral issues. So I think the general principle is the court's going to look at what the core issues is and control the evidence as it's entitled to under Part 33 in any event. So in terms of a brief summary of top tips before we move on, certainly when I'm dealing with FD and and pleading FD, I would suggest that we put a, usually in a defence, put the claimant on bare notice in terms of general pleading, even notwithstanding the more recent case law, simply letting the claimant know that the defendant is of the view that the claimant's credibility is at issue. After witness statements have been disclosed and updated schedules have been filed, I think it's sound advice, certainly for defendants, but also claimants, if you've got perhaps the hint of FD, certainly that's the stage that you want to get counsel on board to give you a proper prospects advice on both the substantive elements of the claim, but also FD. And at that stage, if you're a defendant, ought to inform your letter to the claimant saying, we are alleging FD, here's some of the inconsistency, if not necessarily all of it, that we're going to be relying on. And then 
once that letter is sent, also those elements I will tend to plead within the county schedule itself, particularly if they really relate to individual heads of loss. Anything that you would fortify that checklist with, James? In terms of what a claimant's representative needs to think about, it's ensuring that, in particular, a schedule matches what the claimant's actual evidence is and what any contemporaneous wider evidence says as well. And a claimant nearly come unstuck in right at SIS systems, a, a case before Mrs Justice Yip, where a schedule had just been drafted based upon what was in a care report, when actually the claimant said, in reality, I'm not needing this level of care. So it's that careful scrutiny of making sure what's in a schedule isn't just signed off blindly by a claimant. And of course, it's ensuring that a claimant is live to some of the wider social media postings and the like, which can undermine accounts where they say they're not doing X, Y, and Z in absolute terms. I think it's always important to avoid absolutes. You might not be able to walk the dog as often, but if you say, I can't walk the dog because of an orthopedic injury, then you're going to be exposed potentially if the defendant later discloses evidence which shows you walking a dog. So let's move on to um, findings of FD at trial, specifically the case of Kajanu and Essex University NHS Trust. Yeah, it's an interesting case. And at first instance, it probably reflects the high watermark of where defendants and insurers were getting to in these cases, because the momentum really has been with the insurance industry on FD in recent years. It was a clinical negligence case. The claimant wasn't a particularly pleasant man. He'd been convicted of attempted murder. He lied at trial and in his evidence about the circumstances in which he'd suffered an initial injury, which had led him to seek treatment from which the claim for clinical negligence had arisen. And he'd been found at first instance to have lied about that, but that was fundamental, where the defendant had also relied upon his convictions generally for an overall credibility attack, which the first instance judge had brought into. Now, it was overturned by the High Court on Appeal. And some sort of important reminders, really, as regards the limits of fundamental dishonesty in Section 57. The mechanism by which the claimant received his cut was irrelevant to the success in the clinical negligence claim. Did it go to the root of the claim? No, to use the language of Goslin and Howlett. It was collateral. It was no more of an incidental or collateral to the claim. And the claimant's credibility on that issue was not relevant to his evidence in the civil claim. Likewise, Section 57 was not a credibility filter, is what was held. Not all victims are angels, was the reminder given by the High Court. But the claimant was not deprived of a right to sue simply because he was convicted or because he was at trial and still dishonest about what happened during his underlying crime, which had led him to lie in the first place about why he'd been injured. So there, actually, the judge had taken a wrong turn at first instance and put too much evidence on wider credibility, which wasn't wedded to the actual claim itself, Darren. Yes. And I think that leads us fairly nicely to Elgamel and Westminster City Council 2021. That, I think, is, again, a cat amongst the pigeons for a lot of both claimant and defendant lawyers. That was a parkour case. The claimant was a parkour practitioner, and he injured his ACL when he was training. He brought his claim saying that he was effectively very restricted 
in his day-to-day activities and his future work capacity and held out to experts exactly that uh, as part of his claim. There was surveillance evidence which showed certainly what looked like a, a more able gentleman getting in and out of cars and various other things. The trial judge found, and I think it's useful to quote here, the claimant clearly in his evidence believes that he is disabled to a greater extent than has been found. He gave clear evidence he was making adjustments to get into his car that were not visible to me from his perspective. He was not lying, however objectively he was exaggerating, and so as a a fact, he was lying. That's A, A, an interesting line from the court, and B, I think it's also a sobering, at first blush, judgment. But really, it's the the court going back to the Ivy and Hinting test and doesn't really take us an awful lot farther than what was originally expressed in terms of the assessment of honesty or dishonesty. Is that your view, James? Yeah, I think so. There's probably two key points that I take from this decision. Firstly, it's that point, because actually the defendant appealed and said you should have found fundamental dishonesty having found dishonesty. The High Court said, well, actually, the judge hadn't found dishonesty because it hadn't satisfied the well-known test and driving. But secondly, the High Court said, look, even if there was dishonesty, it's a jury question. It's a question of fact and degree in each case as to whether or not the exaggeration is fundamental to the claim. And in this case in particular, there wasn't dishonesty, but if there was, it was collateral to the main claim. It wasn't sufficiently there and they wouldn't have interfered with the judge's assessment on it. Interesting case, Darren. It is. It reminds me, I think it was Smith and Ashwell a few years ago, and the language used in that case where a claimant is trying to convince rather than to deceive is the term sometimes used. Very interesting. In many of the cases we've just looked at, Darren, a key limb of the defendant's evidential challenge is surveillance evidence. Now, what is surveillance evidence? How is it deployed? Well, there's the there's the black letter law description by Lord Justice Potter and Rule and Hume, who says, for the purposes of disclosure, a video film or a recording is a document within the extended meaning of CPR 31.4 capital A. The defendant who proposes to use such a film to attack a claimant's case is therefore subject to the rules of disclosure under CPR 31. Somewhat more dramatically, his Honour Judge Collander in Douglas and O'Neill describes surveillance as a weapon and a legitimate weapon in those circumstances. That surveillance, the instruction of an investigator to film and watch a claimant over a number of days normally, that's classic surveillance. I'm often asked, Darren, is that equivalent to social media entries, Facebook, which shows someone doing something which they've said they can't do as part of their claim? Yes, procedurally, the courts deal with them in exactly the same way. They will be obtained by a person, and you would expect a witness statement that's putting those documents, whatever those documents are, into evidence. It's evidence which is inevitably served later than the usual deadline for case management, and you need to make your application to rely on it out of time. I think what we're seeing in terms of additional social media surveillance is really interesting now, where we're not just seeing your usual Facebook and Twitter, where in the past people almost used them as their diary and and in fact confessed that they were making illegitimate claims. 
you're seeing far more sophisticated social media like Strava, where people's runs and bicycle rides are being monitored and recorded, and they're putting them out publicly. Or in a, a relatively recent case of mine, where the claimant was effectively relatively a stay-at-home character and, and didn't really go out and socialise much, but was claiming quite significant symptoms in his upper limbs, including his hands. We got surveillance evidence for his PlayStation Network account, which revealed very serious and significant and lengthy use of the PlayStation when he claimed he couldn't do any kind of fine work with his fingers at all. James, talk to us a bit about the issues around admissibility and timing, getting in your social media observations or your surveillance video. All important, Darren. The case law tells us that a defendant has to get its timing right. At what point should it be deployed is often a key issue. One of the cases that helps us understand that is O'Leary and Tunnelcraft. Defendant's application refused as it amounted to a late ambush. But facts are stark on that one, Darren. Application made on the day of trial. Edited surveillance was only served six working days before trial. Unedited footage just three days before trial. Defendant's expert had seen it. Claimant and his expert had not. And the trial was put in jeopardy, including the time allotted. It's a very stark example of what not to do. But I suppose in skipping through the facts as I've just done, I've touched upon edited and unedited footage and the need for an application and how is it reviewed by experts and the like. Should we look at those limbs? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think the first thing and the most important thing to say here is that more than any of your other cases, case management is key where you have surveillance evidence. You really ought to, and I'm not just saying that because I am a barrister, but you really ought to get counsel on board early when you're a defendant. And certainly when you're a claimant, you need to get your counsel on board as soon as there's the hint that there's surveillance evidence that's coming down the line. Case management is key, and you will ultimately want your barrister and you to have discussions about building in time after the claimant's updated schedule of loss after the defendant's final evidential snapshot, their final medical legal report, and ideally before joint statements, if you can land that sweet spot, then that is the best time to be making your surveillance application to the court. There ought, in those circumstances, to be sufficient time for it to be dealt with at the PTR stage. And perhaps, even if you're very fortunate, not imperil the trial date. But you may be asking to adjourn off in those circumstances. You must always expect that you're going to be serving both the edited and the unedited footage. So it's essential that once you've got your edited surveillance report that you ask for it. And you do need to go through it in very fine detail. Take the time to view it and ask your barrister to do exactly the same. I think it's very important, having already said, case management is key that where we have scenarios where medics are busier than they ever are and they're asking for more time both for joint statements or for final reports, that you keep an eye on slippage because the circumstances that we see in O'Leary and Tunnelcraft, it's a very rare instance of the court saying no and this amounts to an ambush. But I can see with busy practitioners where timetables and case management are slipping away 
that you will find yourself in a scenario that unintentionally you are ambushing the claimant with your surveillance evidence. And ultimately, of course, they must be given time to file a statement in response to this, and you'll want their expert and your expert to review it and comment on it before ultimately the matter reaches trial. It's always a question of at what stage has the claimant truly pinned their colours to the mast as to when it's deployed. Now, if you're if you're a claimant's representative who has surveillance land, you've got to look at the timing. You've got to look at its contents carefully. You've got to ensure the claimant sees it, that you prepare any rebuttal evidence you need, and that you, as Darren has said, secure the unedited footage, because it might create a picture which is unfair, because there are good days and there are bad days. But I think it ties in as well that the early preparation and proper care in managing a case will help a claimant here. As I've said before, I I always use it because it's the starkest example. Avoid absolutes unless there is very much an absolute in question. Claimant says, I can't do X, Y, and Z. I can't kick a football. But they seem to be kicking a football. It's very hard to untangle that if they always meant something more nuanced. Absolutely. And I think that the most important thing to add in terms of your normal application for surveillance evidence and covering off all of the other crossing the I's and dotting the T's is that you must remember that you need to make a precedent T and effectively follow the CPR 315A process. This is one of those big, substantial changes to the case. It will add a substantial amount of money to the trajectory of the litigation, perhaps even adding an additional day to the trial if the claimant chooses to go ahead. I think that's an important point for all sides is to what extent does the surveillance give a silver bullet? Because once it's deployed, it will add tremendously to the cost. And I think that's something that defendants have to be particularly conscious of. Um, I'll, I'll often have now, whether I'm for claimant or defendancy cases, where the surveillance doesn't take things much further and it will often complicate a process and delay a sensible settlement. But it is one of the hot topics, together with the reliance upon social media and one that's ever evolving, Darren, isn't it? It is. And I think it's been a, a useful exercise. I suspect if we do this podcast in a year or two's time, we would be having a, an even more evolved conversation about where we're going and how the courts are dealing with this. Indeed, Darren, absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for joining Darren and I for today's podcast. And we look forward to seeing you all soon in person. Absolutely. Thank you for your time.